Black Warriors, Tansei Sego Anibuju. Quay Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. So today we get the opportunity to speak to Dr. Lynn Gale. She is an Indigenous artist, a writer, and an outspoken critic of colonial laws and policies that hurt Indigenous peoples. She's also published two books, The Truth That Wampum Tells Us, about the Algonquin land claims process that was published in 2014, and her most recent book from 2017 is Claiming Anishinaabe, Decolonizing the Human Spirit. And she also took on the colonizer itself, Indian Affairs, in court and won her case at the Ontario Court of Appeal on the issue of unknown and unstated paternity in Indian registration. And today, we are. she's also joined by her partner, Nick Gale. Welcome to the both of you. Miigwech, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me and allowing Nick to, to participate. Oh, of course. I mean, that's what this is all about. We're all working on these social justice issues together. And I'm wondering, Lynn, if you can tell us a little bit about your background and introduce yourself the way you like to do it. Sure. Um, uh, my name is uh, Lynn Gale. Um, I'm an Algonquin Anishinaabe from the Ottawa River Valley. Uh, I was born in uh, Scarborough, Ontario, and grew up in the west end of Toronto. And I have uh, seven brothers and sisters, and I um, have a PhD in Indigenous Studies. Wow, that I mean, that's a lot. You certainly have a huge family, and you know, a PhD is a considerable piece of work. And if I understand correctly, one of your books is based on your PhD, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. Um, the Truth That Wampum Tells is based on my dissertation work. And um, it's, what is unique about that work is that I use a, a Anishinaabe methodology. Oh, and that's especially relevant in, today, um, in today's academia because there's so many more Indigenous you know, scholars and students and staff who are really looking for Indigenous methodologies. Yes, yes, that was uh, that was quite a, a feat. Um, I didn't come from it from a historical perspective or a political science perspective. It's mm-hmm. grounded right in Indigenous knowledge, philosophy, and our understanding of truth and knowledge. And we definitely need more of that for sure. And and Nick, I understand from Lynn that you have been a real support to her um, for her advocacy work. And I'm wondering if you'd like to introduce yourself in the way that you prefer. Um, sure. Um, yeah, my name is Nicholas Gale, and um, I've been assisting Lynn since probably around the early 90s uh, with her court cases and attending court and just reading papers and discussing papers and that sort of thing. Yeah, and all of that work can, you know, not only be overwhelming, but also isolating, especially academic work, because you're you're doing it all on your own. It's not like working in an office environment where everybody's sharing the work. So I'm I'm uh, pretty grateful for what you do to help um, Lynn, who is, you know, advocating for our rights. And you mentioned the litigation, and I'm wondering, Lynn, you know, 
when I introduced you, I, you know, I, I told our listeners that you literally took on the colonizer on the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. And I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners, what is that? Sure. Um, so in 1985, when they amended the Indian Act, um, the, the argument was that they were um, removing the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. Now, most of us know that they invented the second generation cutoff rule and applied it earlier to the women who were reinstated. But what a lot of people didn't know and don't know is that in 1985, they also became silent on the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. So for the most part, prior to 1985, there were provisions that protected children of unknown and unstated paternity. But then in 85, it became silent. And then um, what, what, what they were doing is um, that when new people applied, they were applying what's known as the two-parent rule. And in my situation where I have an unknown grandfather, that at the level of practice, that amounted to they were assuming my unknown grandfather was a non-Indian man. And so I started using the discourse and the language of, of INAC's unknown and unstated paternity policy. I didn't know if they had a written policy, but, and that, that didn't matter. At the level of practice, um, they had a, a policy of assuming that unknown and unstated fathers were uh, non-Indian men, which results, which ended up resulting in people losing or not, not being entitled Indian status, and in my situation, that's what happened because I didn't know who my my grandfather uh, was or is. I was denied uh, Indian status, and morally, I knew that was wrong. I knew that in 1985 they were celebrating the Charter and celebrating the amendment to the Indian Act, and so it really made me um, mad that they were now targeting mothers and children, although celebrating the Charter. Well, and what, you know, the thing that gets me about this unknown or unstated paternity um, is, you know, prior to 1985, the legal presumption was that, you know, a woman who had a child out of wedlock, um, they, they could presume that the father was an Indian. And, you know, you've already explained that in 1985, they got rid of that legal presumption. But in 1985, they didn't create a reverse legal presumption that said all children born to women out of wedlock it will be presumed to be non-Indian. So they didn't actually create a law that said that. They just came up with a policy to make that their own rule. And generally, when you're looking at legislation, you can't create a policy that goes outside the bounds of what was created in the law. So it it really had this sense of targeting um, yes. Indian women and children. Would, is that how you felt about it too? I like to say that they created a silence in the Indian Act about the issue. And then um, then they uh, created this policy where they were assuming that, that the man was a non-Indian man. Now, some people would say, well, they didn't have a written policy. And, I, and I, my mm -hmm. point is, to me, it doesn't matter whether it's a written policy or a uh, 
uh, uh, just a practice they do in, in the office um, because there's non-stated there's non policies as well. Sometimes INAC will create policies but not write them down and that way they could say, we don't have a policy like that. And that's important to know because, you know, our listeners um, might not be familiar with Indian Affairs or, you know, how all of the legislation and policy works, but a policy can be both written and unwritten. A policy can be developed just by virtue of practice. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and that's exactly what you were talking about. And, and you know, whether it was written down from 1985 or whether it was uh, a practice from 1985, it feels very much like they were targeting Indian women and children and, and, um, and, oh, and look at the effect that it had. Yes, for sure. Um, it, certainly, yes, it was my feeling that they were targeting mothers, in particular young mothers and babies, and that just morally outraged me. And what what I and they were targeting. I agree with you. They were targeting women. And what what was completely ridiculous to my thinking was that they were applying this new policy retroactively to my father's birth who was in 1935 and my birth which was in 1962 they were they weren't even applying the policy of or the legislation of the day we were born so they were developed this new policy and that, that's how I like to speak about it they applied it retroactively you're raising another really good point because this is a point that also impacts you know sex discrimination in the Indian Act you know generally too about when they made those changes in 1985 presumably those changes would only impact going forward um, but they applied all of these rules retroactively but the retroactive application was always targeted at Indian women and their children so it was you know very much a, a very sexist application of both law and policy and I know that you have been personally impacted by that because you you talked about how you didn't have status because of this policy. So um, Nick mentioned litigation. So what did you do about that? Well, first of all, I want to just comment that, yes, I, I agree with you. They're targeting mothers and children. And mm -hmm. what is so it's so contrary to the indigenous law and the indigenous tradition mm -hmm. that that values that women open the eastern doorway and it's their jurisdiction so in terms of the litigation. I had to go first go through like I knew my grandmother and my my great grandmother and great grandfather were all indigenous on my father's side. So what I first had to do was do an um, recontact with my grandmother and learn the oral tradition, and that took about four years. And um, I think I did that from ninety to ninety four, or maybe even longer. And then um, after that, I. I applied for my grandmother to to get status and my father to get status but my grandmother was only given a 6-2 status so I had to do more further archival research and so that was quite a, a feat. I was in there for a few years and I managed to uh, prove that my grandmother's parents, both of them were entitled to Indian status so then my grandmother was upgraded from a 6-2 to a 6-1-F 
And um, in the situation, I wasn't quite sure what they were going to do with my father. And I, I kind of assumed they'd make him the same as her, but they didn't. They get then made him a 6'2", which is a lesser form of status, as we know, and which meant he couldn't pass it on to me. So that was when I realized I was being discriminated against because of my female ancestors. And um, I had all the oral tradition. I had the archival documents. I applied for Indian status and they denied me. And then, uh, you know, I wasn't an Indian in terms of status. And so you have a lot of identity questions. And so I was sitting there with my knowledge going, well, what do I do with this now? And eventually I, I gained the courage to enter into Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto. And that's where Kimberly Murray was there. And Kimberly was wonderful. She she opened me with open arms and she said she said to me something to the effect of what took you so long? I guess it's because the Indian Act was amended in 85 and I wasn't there until 94 or sometime after that. But um, it was so wonderful that she opened her arms and that was a real rite of passage for me because it, it told me that my um, the work I had did and who I was as an Indigenous person was uh, important enough to push forward in terms of litigation and so uh, Kimberly took on my um, court case at, through Aboriginal Legal Services on the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. So what was the litigation? So I understand from what you've said already that you applied for Indian status under the Indian Act to Indian Affairs, they denied your application. Did you also appeal to the registrar or did you go straight to a litigation? Kim did protest it, and oh, okay. uh, but they uh, INAC said that I was properly omitted, and then um, we moved forward into uh, court. And the way, um, again, I'm not a lawyer, but the way mm -hmm. they uh, structured the st statement of claim was they were challenging this assumption, this policy of unknown and unstated paternity, and that was in 2001. That was when our first, my first statement of claim was made, but unfortunately um, it was struck. And we, we even went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal agreed with the lower, lower court and the Court of Appeal told us, instructed uh, my lawyers to take it as a Section 15 charter challenge and that's how we proceeded forward. And the second statement of claim was applied, um, filed in 2002. So for the benefit of our listeners, We've been talking about Indian registration under the Indian Act, uh, and that's where Indian Affairs, the Federal Department of Indian Affairs, um, decides who is an Indian and who isn't. And there's various sections that you can be registered under. The, the ones we're talking about here are Section 6.1 and Section 6.2. For, you know, just in the simplest terms, Section 6.1 is considered by Indian Affairs to be an Indian with the maximum amount of rights to pass on their Indian status. So a Section 6.1 Indian could have children with a non-Indian and their kids would still be Indians. They'd be registered under Section 6.2. But a Section 6.2 Indian, like Lynn explained, is actually a lower form of Indian status because they can't pass on Indian status to their children all by themselves. They would need to parent, co-parent with another uh, registered Indian. Now, because of this unstated paternity, imagine a scenario where someone doesn't know the father or 
refuses to state the father for safety reasons, for example. So Indian Affairs assumes, makes a legal presumption that the father of the children is a non-Indian. And so all those kids would be registered either as a 6'2", if their mom's a 6'1", or they wouldn't be registered at all if their mom was a 6'2". This impacts literally tens of thousands of children all over the country. Yeah, um, that, that's what I, I can remember off the top of my head. But yes, in, in my family, there was, you know, eight children impacted by it. And then any of your future children and so on and so on would also be impacted by it. And so yes. also for the benefit of our listeners, Lynn was talking about a Section 15 Charter Challenge. So we have something called the, the Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms in our Constitution. And Section 15 is known as the Equality Section. So there's supposed to be equality of, of law as between men and women. And this was being challenged as an unequal application of the law as it relates to Indian status. And so you filed your second statement of claim. And then what happened from there, Lynn? Um, it was moving forward as a charter challenge. So we, um, and I was a graduate student at the time, and um, I was working with Aboriginal Legal Services, and the, the lawyers were changing as well. So I was the only uh, continuity within the context of graduate school, which was very, very difficult. They had to get expert reports for this charter, section, mm -hmm. section 15 charter challenge. And those reports, it took six years before we got them. It was it was an insane process where um, the first expert report, the Department of Justice expert report, he had to amend it three times and then they weren't communicating very well. We needed to have uh, clap with his methodology and that wasn't coming. And of course, you know, the Department of Justice has a lot of power, right? They have a lot of money and a lot of resources, millions of dollars. And so eventually there was a lot of delays. Uh, but also, again, I was preoccupied with graduate school. And then eventually in 2014, uh, we made it to the Superior Court. So that's 12 years from the, you know, first state, second statement of claim. And uh, we lost miserably in the, in the uh, Superior Court. Oh, no. And obviously that was the reason why you filed your appeal to the Court of Appeal? Yes. So um, the way I understand it is the argument, uh, the judge argued that male applications and female applications were proceed through the uh, INAC in the same way. So there, no, there, there was no sex discrimination, which administration is not, you know, it's mm -hmm. it, discrimination is what is inherent in the law, just not how the law is processed or how the, excuse me, how the administration of the law is processed. So, um, but then there was also two errors of law and that allowed us to move forward to the Court of Appeal. My court case was heard at the Superior Court level shortly after, or, or was the this Chinoa and, and Susan and Tammy Yantha court decision. And Mary Eberts was um, working on that file, and she learned she learned of some evidence that wasn't disclosed in my case. So INAC or Department of Justice failed to disclose important evidence in my case, and and they when called on it, they said that it wasn't relevant. But that wasn't their, uh, you know, they didn't have the option. It should have been properly adjudicated at the superior court level. 
Um, and so we did move forward with this new evidence in, as we are entering into the Court of Appeal. So at the Court of Appeal, you have scenario where DOJ hadn't even disclosed important evidence. And then w- what happened at the Court of Appeal? What was the change? There was a turn in the it, it seemed to be a turn in the way my lawyers argued the issue. In the end, the judges ruled that the policy was unreasonable. So they circumvented the whole issue of non-disclosed evidence and the charter issue and they argued that through administration law the unknown and unstated paternity policy was unreasonable there was sufficient circumstantial evidence in my background to assume that my grandfather was an indian and so they ruled in my favor but as i said they they used administrative law versus charter law and not only that they then ruled that I was entitled to a 6-2. So it was somewhat of a victory, but on different terms from which you had originally proceeded, and then you get registered under the lower form of status. Yes, yes. And, and you have to wonder, why would the judges make that decision? Uh, you know, they should have just said it was unreasonable. You should have, you should determine her status through both her parents as being Indian. And then that would mean I would be a 6-1. But they, they kind of confounded and, and made a mess of it when they said she's entitled to a 6-2. So on the one hand, they said it's unreasonable to assume he's a non-Indian. On the other hand, at the level of practice, we're only going to give her a 6-2, so it's pretty much an assumption he's a non-Indian. What did you do from there? Because, you know, being registered under a 6-2 is basically telling you, unless you have children with another Indian, you, you know, any future children, if you decide to have children, would not even be registered. So it's like not not even a, an entire victory. What did you do from there? Yes. Well, first of all, you know, I'm 60 years old. Nick and I aren't going to have any children, (laughs) (laughs) but I do have a lot of siblings that do have children. Um, And so, um, I mean, they gave me my 6-2 status. Now, that's where I am right now. Um, I wasn't happy with it. But of course, I'm very familiar with Sharon MacGyver's uh, struggle with she's gone now all the way to the UN. And so I continued my work standing behind Sharon uh, and all the other women. You know, I've been protesting publicly for about about these issues since 2005. I was at the protests uh, and at Harlem and Hill and then again in 2010 with March or Moon. And then uh, um, more recently, after the Sharon MacGyver UN ruling, it was obvious to me that um, her supporters were looking for, of course, additional support. And uh, I stood behind Sharon and her her victory of um, mm-hmm. 6-1-A all the way at the United Nations level. So registered as Section 6-2, and there's a lot going on, Deschanel, uh, and uh, the Yanthas win their case, and you're talking about Cher McIver. Cher McIver was challenging sex discrimination in the way the Indian Act um, works, effectively applying this Section 6-2 cutoff to generations earlier, prior to 1985. She wins at here in Canada, she wins at the UN, and all of this is kind of coalescing all around the same time as your win. So, Since then, um, Indian Affairs has amended the Indian Act, it's called Bill S-3, to address the Deschanel scenario, to address the 6-1-A all the way that Sharon was fighting for, and also it was supposed to properly address 
your court case around unknown and unstated paternity and INAC's policy, and it was supposed to make it more flexible. So I'm wondering, have you thought about or have you already reapplied or asked for a reconsideration of your 6-2 status based on the new Bill S-3? Yes, we're working on that, but not mm-hmm. necessarily on the 6-1A all the way clauses. Just based on, I guess, what I said earlier, that although the judges, the judges ruled that, of course, my, as I said, my grandmother was an Indian and judges ruled it was unreasonable for them to assume that my grandfather was a non-Indian. We're moving forward on that issue and mm-hmm. holding on holding on the 6-1-A all the way clauses. Now, I, I think it's, it's, well, first of all, I hear a lot of people say that moving through the administration of INAC can take as long as two years. Mm-hmm. But I do have, you know, Aboriginal Legal Services and Mary Eberts are, are still working on my case, uh, which is kind of outrageous when you think that, you know, people think my court case is over, but really it isn't. I just wondered if any of the changes to the Indian Act, because they put in some kind of you know, interpretation provision around unstated paternity, if that meant that you and your legal counsel would move forward with trying to get you moved from a 6-2 to a 6-1, whichever 6-1 section, but, you know, based on your case that you won and based on that policy being unreasonable, if they're going to try to get you from a 6-2 to a 6-1. Yes, they are, because if my my grandmother was never denied and my, my father was never denied, then my mother would be entitled Titled, and then I would be a 6-1 because I was born before 85. So yes, they are moving forward with that. But I'm going to stress again, it's unfortunate that the judges assumed or, or ruled or made the decision that I was entitled to a 6-2 because INAC will hang off of that. Some things that you have in your favor is that you're also a very well-known advocate and activist on this issue, that there were some really Um, damning statements in that Ontario Court of Appeal case about just how and all the reasons why this policy was unreasonable and how, you know, it it impacted people so poorly and and so differentially based on the fact that this is only impacting Indian women that, you know, maybe they will be publicly pressured, if not legally pressured, to give you the registration that you should have had all along. So this shouldn't even be considered a new registration, but had they not done all of these unreasonable things, then yes. you should have been registered as a 6-1 all the way along. Yes, and here in my, the ruling or the win I got in 217, so here it is 219 and it's it's still, you know, an anchor around my feet. That's a really important issue, Lynn, because people who aren't necessarily familiar with how court cases work, they assume that when you hear in the media that someone won their court case, they assume, first of all, that, you know, they they won it on, on the terms that they had been arguing. And second of all, they assume that these things, you know, their victories apply immediately. And yes. You know, look at Sharon, how many times, you know, Sharon McIver, how many times has she had to go to court and the UN and different, you know, human rights treaty bodies to be told over and over, you're right, Sharon, you know, Canada's discriminating, but there was no instant rectification of that injustice. 
Yes, after my ruling, um, it took me actually quite a long time. A couple, I would say a couple of months to figure to figure out what happened. And I think it was yourself and Sheila Day that helped me realize it was it was uh, ruled on um, administration administration mm -hmm. law and uh, as unreasonable versus charter law. But then afterwards, it was very difficult and almost I would say depressing. It wasn't it wasn't a victory. When you look at the issue of unknown and unstated paternity, they relied on circumstantial evidence. So, so, so that means that INAC thinks that they, ha they can demand certain things from these young mothers. And that it, in and of itself can be very racist, sexist, and and oppressive depending on the situation of that young mother because it's not just about not knowing the parent, which, I mean, that can happen in a lot of cases, but it's also where the young woman, for her own safety, doesn't name the parent and Indian Affairs uses that against her. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the child is a product of an affair and a, a, they live in a northern community and the man's not going to sign the birth certificate. And, you know, not only that, if the child is a deaf definitely unknown due to a rape and mm -hmm. you know my case did not resolve that now INAC if they're you know the people working there they're, they're moral people they would think re they would be reasonable and not interrogate and and bother these young mothers for such detailed information yeah exactly and one of the things I know we, you know, we all might have different interpretations of Bill S3, but when they put that interpretive provision in there about unknown and unstated paternity, you know, make, making the registrar, you know, supposed to be more flexible and consider alternatives, at the end of the day, you're still required to provide evidence. You're still being asked to provide names where possible. You're still going through that evidentiary process that effectively puts them in the same position. And you basically one has to hope that the registrar is going to be open and flexible and considerate and accommodating of each unique situation. But given their past record, that's a pretty big hope to ask of these women. Oh, I I agree. I, I agree that INAC still has agency in de in in denying these mothers. I had I had a hard time understanding the interpretive provision, but eventually I I, I did, and that was a real awakening for me because um, it, it it says that it, you rule in their favor, but it doesn't really say in situations of unknown when when it's a mm -hmm. rape. And you know, to, to tell you the truth, I don't know who the my grandfather was. It was their interpretation that there was circumstantial evidence that he was probably an Indian. Just puts Indian affairs into our most intimate and private affairs and, and really has an impact on people. And and I'm sure you know from doing all of this litigation and working in this area that there are some people who would never even apply just to not have to go through that in, you know, interrogative process. Yes, the sh they take away their shame and their dignity, which mm -hmm. is a moral outrage. They shouldn't be doing that to young mothers and babies. So, Lynn, I also wanted to get some of your personal feedback on impact of this policy. And I just don't mean in terms of whether someone's registered or not for like in terms of programs and services or things like that. But I mean, in terms of the impact that would have on an individual 
and their sense of identity and belonging and legitimacy and all of those things that Indian Affairs has has interfered with. I'm wondering if you can share just how impactful this policy is. Well, I would say that what INAC has done in controlling uh, who is an Indian and who is not an Indian through sex discrimination has devastated my family and devastated my father and devastated my family. Um, you know, at one time, children, uh, well, as I said, children were born of mothers. They opened the eastern doorway. It's their jurisdiction. The father's there. The father's there. And father, in, in, in our communities, a father was a social process more than a biological process. And um, so what that all changed, of course, and then they, through patriarchy, they birthed the, un, you know, the unworthy bastard. I'm going to put that in quotes. And that has very real practical implications on people's lives. Women became ashamed of these babies who they, who culturally at one time they just loved them. They, they even adopted non-Indigenous children and nurtured them. So I would say, it, 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 speaking from my, um, per, my position and my interpretation, it devastated my father and, and had a huge impact on my family and it hugely impacted me. Growing up, I had... Um, uh, I knew that I was Algonquin, but only at the level of practice. It was never orally discussed. So what my father would do was take us into our community of Pekwakanagan First Nation, introduce us to our cousins and our aunts, tell us who, who they were, constantly, consistently tell us about our kinship, but never really embraced who he was as an Algonquin. And he would also took us, um, you know, we harvested fish from the lake. Having eight children, I imagine that he needed that. But he, I think he was consciously and intentionally trying to teach us who we were as Algonquin people, yet he wouldn't claim it because it all was pushed, it was pushed underground. It was a shameful thing. Um, and so, um, but I think what's, what this identity denial has done is really spiritually and emotionally hurt a lot of people. And I developed a concept called disenfranchised grief to, to help explain what happens to people who are denied their identity because of blood quantum, a phenotype physiology, and uh, Indian Act status. And um, I did that as part of my master's work. I looked at identity and that's what I did. I developed this theory called disenfranchised spirit. And one of the people, of course, I was drawing from my own experience, my dad's experience and, and one of uh, an older man who um, I came in touch with, his name was Harold Ross. And he was definitely uh, very much like my father struggling um, with alcoholism and um, he's given me permission to write about his story and talk about his story. But he, uh, um, we encountered one another when we had a common great, great, great grandparent. And so I agreed to help him, even though I have a vision disability, I agreed to help him to the archives and find the archival document that he needed to gain Indian status. And he's an older gentleman. Um, he's passed now, but he was an older gentleman. And through the process of archival research, I found the document and then I took, um, he gave me control of his file with INAC and I asked INAC to push it forward quickly because it was um, a senior person. And within a short period of time, like a year, he became a status Indian and his whole life changed. 
he he quit drinking and he started to walk the red path and he became a respected elder in the community colonial law which was really meant to legislate us you know legislate us out of existence and even today there's a legislative extinction date for each community based on indian status that it ha- has so much power over us and our life opportunities and our sense of identity and whether or not we even belong to our communities, all based on Indian status, which is to some extent still discriminatory based on sex. It's racist in that it's based on this fictional idea of blood quantum. And it's not just impacting individuals. Like we're denying people the ability to be part of their communities, to actually be part of their First Nations. And that's got to have a negative effect on the First Nation too. And I'm wondering what you think about the impact on actual communities. I really feel for for the chiefs of these First Nation communities and the difficult situation they are in. You know, they only have certain amount of land and certain amount of resources, and they're trying their best to move forward. They want economic benefits that Canadians have. They want their children to have homes. They want their children to have nice clothes. They want their children to feel proud about who they are. So I really have a lot of um, compassion for the situation these uh, First Nation communities are in. I think that it's what Canada is doing in eliminating status Indians, of course, is eliminating their their treaty responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And also it they what they are doing is is committing genocide. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I mean the National Enquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls talked about this discrimination in Indian status as one of the aspects of genocide. And it's like, finally, we have an official report that actually puts that together, which you have a a legislative extinction date for a First Nation. I mean, how could you call it anything else other than a genocide? You've destroyed a community. That's right. And I will say that in terms of the community, Pickwakanagan First Nation, I did apply for band membership before I was a status Indian and they declined. They denied me. And of course, I didn't take that personally because I know it had to do with resources and funding. But I did apply and I was denied. And it was a good thing I did because the Department of Justice was trying to argue that it was my band who was denying me and not them. And so I, I had the ability to articulate that, in fact, they were wrong. But then not too long ago, a few years ago, Anishinaabek Nation uh, decided they wanted to um, uh, establish their own citizenship code. And of course, I was hopeful again, and I was so happy I was going to be a citizen. But again, I was denied because I was a, or was not a status Indian. That was a, another big disappointment. And there comes a, there was a time when I was kind of upset at, for, upset at myself for having this hope. But uh, through the citizenship law, I was denied because I didn't have uh, Indian status and I wasn't a band member. But uh, as soon as I gained status, um, of course, I applied for band membership and they did embrace me because now I, I was I'm now a status Indian. But I think what is is even more lovely is that recently at the Pikwakanagan powwow, I was asked to come to a special ceremony where they honored Indigenous veterans. What they did was they were, again, honoring Indigenous veterans. And my great-grandfather, Joseph Gagne, he fought in war, war, World War One, And when he came home to his home community of Golden Lake, instead of gaining the benefits as an 
as a veteran, he was he was rendered homeless. He was escorted out of his community and told he had to leave because his mother was an Indian, not his father. They honored him and they they gave him a original what's known as an aboriginal veterans medal and they uh allowed me to be the recipient and what was most wonderful about it pam was that um i was able to wear it and dance with it oh my goodness i know know. that's just that's so impactful yes it's a good story (laughs) it is a good story and it's one i think all the First Nations should hear because, you know, people, even when they get their registration back, uh, you know, when they're registered, maybe for the first time or their registration changes, that doesn't mean that they're entitled to band membership. There are some bands that don't allow 6-2 Indians to be band members. Or even when you are, you know, you qualify for band membership and you, and, you know, we all should have been registered and band members this whole time. So we didn't do anything wrong. This isn't about us. There's no defect in us. We weren't traitors. We didn't do anything wrong. This was all, you know, the colonizer trying to divide us. I always thought that when people got registered and got their band membership back, that every community should be doing a welcoming home ceremony. Yeah. To, you know, heal the wounds and the pain that so many of us have lived with because of this colonially constructed denial yes 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 and it was wonderful to dance with the chief and my uh, my cousins that they were accepting medals for their ancestors as well so mm-hmm. kirby white duck was there and he was dancing and so it was uh it was wonderful i i did at the t- after i gained status indian status i was saying to somebody I was saying to nick oh they might not accept me and 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 uh he said he was wondering why i would say that because you know the funding issue would be resolved and i said well i'm such an outspoken critic against the modern treaty process as as um you know rooted being rooted in extinguishment mm-hmm. versus respecting jurisdiction so i said maybe they they're kind of fed up with my um my outspokenness about the issue of, of that issue but they they accepted me just need to work hard to to restore everybody and there's there's lots of things that different people can do to help i think first nations you know, should really reach out and and welcome their people back home. And uh, I'm wondering if you have any ideas about, you know, what Canadians can do to help, because I know, Nick, you've been supporting Lynn, thank goodness, because this is a long journey. This stuff doesn't just happen in six months. It's years and years and years and years, and it's even still ongoing. And I wonder if um, either of you have ideas on what Canadians can do to help on this issue going forward. Nick just tells stories about it. He talks to his parents about it. He talks to his family about the issue. I think uh, I think we have to be critical about who's um, who's creating the curriculum in Canada. Mm-hmm. I think we we have to uh, value and really value Indigenous intellectuals such as yourself and Russell Diabo, um, Sharon McIver. Um, and re- really understand that we're not going to, Canadians aren't going to get the truth from the media and from a Canadian created curriculum. They have to reach outside and find the Indigenous intellectuals. We always had Indigenous intellectuals in our community and we still do. That's an important point, I think, because adding one or two Indigenous stories to a mainstream media program isn't capturing the wealth of knowledge and experience and insight and analysis and wisdom that comes from 
so many indigenous peoples across the country. I mean, in, in ever like all of our youth who are out there, you know, protesting against climate inaction and all of our elders who have all of our laws and traditions and got our warriors and our scholars. There's just and all of our moms and dads. There's just so much information there that just simply isn't captured in mainstream media or like you said in the Canadian curriculum and I think your suggestion that Canadians need to look to actual Indigenous sources is probably the best. In terms of this issue, the unknown and unstated paternity in general, because I know you're an advocate for, you know, addressing that issue outside of your own personal situation. And then also in terms of the fact that you're still uh, 6'2 and you're not registered in 6'1 where you should be. What's next for you? I know you're, you know, you're working on trying to, to push to change your, your own status, but are there other things that we can do to support this issue moving forward? Well, uh, one thing that I'm thinking about a lot now is the um, application process. It shouldn't it shouldn't be so lengthy for people to come home. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have to wait a year or two. I think that Canada should be funding friendship centers, uh, uh, First Nation communities, finding people who can help people gain their status. Because I get a lot of messages from people asking me to help them, uh, asking me for their opinion, and I'm very reluctant to give my opinion, first mm-hmm. of all, because uh, I'm not a lawyer. Second of all, ultimately, it's INAX internal practices and policies that are going to determine whether they're entitled or not. So I think these people need help uh, in coming home. So I I guess I'll continue to to speak up about that issue. But what uh, is next for me is the University of Regina Press has, we're signing a, a contract for a book. Oh, that's fantastic. And will it be specifically on this issue and your journey? Uh, yes, and it will be on, uh, on my process of unknown and unstated paternity, but also my contribution to with uh, you know serving Jeanette Corbet Laval and and Sharon McIver in their work insisting on six one a all the way. So um, it'll be on on that because uh, all along I've been standing behind. Jeanette Corbet-Laval and, and Sharon McIver. It wasn't just about uh, unknown and unstated paternity. I, I knew that uh, I felt strongly that women and their descendants were, were deserving of 61A, just as the men and their descendants born before 1985 were entitled to 61A. So it'll be on both the issue of unknown and unstated paternity and, and my contribution to the 61A all the way struggle it will be, for the most part, a compilation of what I've already written uh, and some of my uh, public statements or some of my talks. But then it'll be a final chapter, a lengthy final chapter of uh, some of my deepest insights into challenging the Department of uh, Depar- challenging INAC and the Department of Justice. What, for example, uh, Department of Justice spent over a million dollars fighting my case. It's incredible. There's just no end to the number of Justice Canada lawyers or Indian Affairs policy people and researchers and money that they have to fight us on all of these things over and over and over and over again. 
Yes, and and what I hope to do is um, include some, you know, some images of the 2005 protests, the 2010 protests, and some of the talks I did. And, you know, that wonderful ceremony um, that the senators had where they wrapped us in blankets. That's a really a celebration and an honoring. I've been working hard to try to keep the, the, the issue in the consciousness of people, developing such concepts like the Indigenous Famous Five and and the 61A all the way. You know, coming from a background in cultural anthropology, I was quite well aware that you you really need to make things simple and catchy for people and, and try to ride off of uh, some of the momentum that's, uh, you know, been in the past, such as mm -hmm. um, the famous five. So I do hope, though, that the book, what's published in the fall with University of Regina Press, I hope it brings me some closure. I started this process when I was 23 years old, and now I'm, you know, 57 years old. And I was in court for 16 years. And, you know, it, it took me 23 years to, to, to get status. And I really uh, think that my contribution is is more than challenging the state. I my mm -hmm. my one of my favorite things to do is is learn about and think about indigenous knowledge and and so for example I've been talking a lot lately about Crater's first sacred pipe known as Akupuktuk which is just upstream from the parliament building. So my my favorite thing to do what I love to do is talk about indigenous knowledge philosophy. Well, that's good, because one of my questions I was actually going to ask you, I mean, this is our uh, final question as we come to a close on this podcast, is, I mean, you've you've done so much work, you've been involved in this for years and years and years on this issue and so many others. How do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you stay balanced? Because we all know that this is heavy work and it's prolonged work. And, you know, part of living a warrior life is making sure that you are okay in mind, body and spirit as well. And I'm just wondering, is there anything in particular that you rely on to help stay balanced and healthy? It has certainly been a miserable process. I cannot stress that enough. From the position of a plaintiff, it's been completely miserable. I think that, of course, having Nick by my side it was, mm -hmm. has been a great help. You're, you're absolutely right about the isolation. Is, is not, it's not good for you. Um, that's why another reason why I'm so happy that Sharon MacGyver and yourself um, have stood behind us. It, it really mm -hmm. gave me some medicine. Um, to know that, you know, if, if this is an important issue for Pam Palmer and Chair MacGyver, I'm not going to hide from it because a lot of people do criticize this work that I do. So it's the medicine to help me from the isolation and from that criticism. Um, I think that what I would say is the last four years, um, I've been helping uh, a friend. She bought a farm and I've been helping her take care of the, the barns and decommission the barns, doing a lot of physical activity, getting out there and moving my body. So that was really important. And then you know, learning how to cook. I'm an artist, so I do uh, make things and craft things. So I think gardening. Gardening, uh, um, I'm taking it one step at a time, realizing that 
it's hard to be a human, especially in the context of, of uh, cultural genocide. But I just keep trying, just keep trying, try to make good decisions such as walk away from alcohol, uh, walk away from coffee, walk away from cigarettes, things like that. Always, always try to do the best I can. Amazing advice because all of it helps contribute to, you know, one aspect. You've got people like Nick at your side and other activists supporting you so you know trying to be good medicine for any of the criticism or isolation and then you know taking care of your body too in terms of being physically active and eating healthier and and you know one step at a time and I think that's an important lesson for so many of us because it can seem so overwhelming we're looking 20 years down the road and but what about this and what about that and look at all these issues and you know, one step at a time and taking care of ourselves. I think that's that's uh, really good advice. And I, I really appreciate that you shared all of this today so that people understand this isn't just some kind of, you know, legal issue or this isn't a technical or, you know, theoretical issue that this the issue of unstated paternity and the issue of colonization and genocide and the targeting of, you know, Indian mothers, all of this works together to really oppress and and deny people. So I, I really appreciate that you're here today. I, and also a heartfelt thanks to you, Nick. Um, you don't you don't have to say much, but the fact that you're beside Lynn through this journey and supporting her and helping her so that she can be the warrior out in front addressing this, that that means an awful lot. And I think it's a it's a good lesson to others, you know, family, friends and, and people in society that you can you don't have to be on the front lines. You can be in the background as a support role. And that helps just as much because our warriors need this this report. So thank you both so much for for being on this show. And thank you to all the listeners who are tuning in and learning about uh, this issue and, and Lynn's journey and, you know, even Nick's journey of support. And what I will do for everyone is in the description box in my podcast, I will post a link to her website so that you can, uh, she's got lots of great information on her website, not just her biography, but she's got links, media appearances, you know, her, her publications. And uh, when she also publishes her forthcoming book, I'll post a link to that because it's such important information. The journey and the information and knowledge learned on the journey, I find is just as important as the issue. And so thank you. Lynn and Nick, I appreciate you being here and sharing all of this. I mean, it. this is the kind of knowledge Canadians need to hear. And, and I hope that one or both of you can come back on this show and talk about this as the journey continues. Nick is pretty quiet. <laughs> but uh, as, you, as, you, as you discovered, um, I just thank you so much, Pam. And I just want to say thank you for your work. Oh, well, well, thank you. It's an, it's an honor. Um, being on this journey with you and um, I've always looked to you as a warrior even before I've I knew you <laughs> I knew <laughs> about your case and so you know you provide a lot of information um, inspiration to people so for all my listeners thank you for listening you know you've got this podcast you, you can listen to it several times you've now got access to her website if you like this episode 
please consider supporting the issue by subscribing to the podcast, liking this episode, and sharing the episode with all of your social justice, you know, allies and friends. And make sure to leave me any of your show ideas or questions about this episode in the comment section. My Warrior Life podcast is hosted on SoundCloud, but you can also access it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can follow me on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. On Instagram, I'm Pam underscore Palmeter. Uh, I talk about warrior living and my YouTube videos where I really talk about difficult political and legal issues. And I think uh, I have a YouTube video that's due just talking about unstated and unknown paternity to help provide, you know, more information and, you know, garner more support for Lynn and her journey. So you can subscribe to any of those anytime. We try to cross promote everybody's work so that, you know, you can share it on your own social media. So till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliug. Well,